Welcome to the College Sports Insider presented by the NCAA and Champion Magazine. I'm Jack Ford. If you follow college sports, then you're probably familiar with stories of NCAA rules and fractions. But what do you really know about how those cases get started, how they're investigated, the procedures and the penalties involved? Well, if you're like most people, the answer is probably very little. So we're going to help you out with that today, and that's because our guest is John Duncan, who's the NCAA Vice President of Enforcement. And John, nice to have you here with us today. Good to be here, Jack. Thank you. Uh, there's a lot I want to talk with you about. You know, I, I should note I served on the Division One Committee on Infractions for a couple of years. That's how you and I get to know each other. Uh, and I was fascinated to learn the realities of how the system worked. And I, I was embarrassed to say to people, I didn't know until I started getting involved with it. So hopefully as a consequence of this conversation you and I have, uh, even if people are still, uh, for whatever reason, not agreeing with results, at least they can say, okay, now I know how it all happens here. And I think that's the value to this. Uh, let me ask first, what got you here to the NCAA? You know, Jack, I never intended to work at the NCAA. I was in private practice of law in Kansas City, uh, representing the NCAA, also practicing education law and sports, and uh, represented the NCAA, became intimately acquainted with the, the work of this organization. And when there was a need in the national office, um, the building called and asked if I would come and help out and serve here. And I agreed to do that and, um, and, and found that it was a professional, collaborative, really good place to work. And, uh, and I've been here in this capacity for about four years now. Let me talk a little bit about how the system works, the, the, the procedures that are involved, the processes that are involved. Because once again, what I've found in the past is that just for whatever reason, people don't understand it. And, and once they do, they can get a better grasp on all the stories that they see. So probably the, to, to begin, we should start at the beginning. How is it then that that a, a, a either a set of allegations or suspicions or something gets from a, a college or university into the NCA and the enforcement staff? Yeah, it's a good question, Jack, and we get that a lot. Our information comes mostly from self-reported um, violations that are provided to us by the member colleges and universities that make up the NCAA. It is a condition and obligation of membership to self-report. Um, there are times, though, when schools don't do that, either because they choose not to, which is itself a violation, or because they don't know of the violation. And so we get information from lots of other sources as well. We get anonymous tips. We have a network of sources that we work with. Um, we also listen to the media and read the news. And so we get information from, uh, from lots of different sources. We then have a, a very sophisticated intake process. Where yeah, we look tell me about that. It, 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 I, I'm sure each, each case is going to be different, but generally speaking, when it gets into the building here, what's done with it? Well, it depends on where it's coming from. If it's coming from a member institution, then um, we, we check to see if the facts are correct. We also make sure that they, in Division One, at least have leveled it appropriately. Same thing in Division Two. And By level it, you mean the, the, the level the, the of severity. the serious, seriousness, right. right? If it's coming from an anonymous source or a confidential source or an, a, a tip from the hotline, we then have to look at it a little bit more um, uh, carefully and make sure that we have information that is credible or that could be substantiated, or even if it is substantiated, whether it's even a violation or not. So we get a lot of calls. People are angry about one thing or another, and even if it's true, it's not a violation. And so we sort through all of those things 
And we get a lot of information that we just don't follow up on because it doesn't warrant an investigation. And so one thing I'm very proud of and our, that our staff, uh, what I, we are what I would call um, discerning consumers of information. And so we don't believe everything that comes into us, hand over mouth, shock, wow, can you believe that? Um, we have to be more discerning than that. We're mindful that there are people out there who might use our process for their own purposes. Um, neither are we so overly cynical, though, and so we have to look at the information. Could it be a violation? Could we substantiate it? We'll talk with the institution and then make a decision whether we move forward or not together with the institution cooperatively if we can. You talk about violations. Um, and, you know, in, in, in the real world, you know, I, I was a prosecutor um, and we had statutes. So, you know, if something comes in, you see what statute is and you see if it's a violation or the facts there and then what do you do with it? When you talk about violations here for the NCAA, what are the equivalent of, of statutes? Where do these rules come from? Yeah, the rules that we enforce are the bylaws of the NCAA. They live in the NCAA manual, Division I, Division II, Division Three. There are 5,800 bylaws that our staff is charged with enforcing. Um, and they are, it's, it's important to note, Jack, that those are not rules, regulations, bylaws, drafted here in Indianapolis and then... And yeah, then where, where do they come from? Who they, creates those yeah, rules? They are created by the member schools themselves through a very democratic process. They propose the rules, they debate them, they vet them, they ultimately adopt them and then hand them quite literally to our staff and say, enforce these. So it's not John Duncan, who's the vice president of enforcement. It's not Mark Amert, who's the president of the NCA, who wakes up one morning and says, you know what, as of today, from now on, this is going to be a rule. And if you violate it, here's what the consequences are, are going to be. So you're not creating and crafting what these rules are. Absolutely not. All comes from the institutions themselves for this, as you said, this whole sort of democratic voting process. That's right. Uh, do you get a sense I, I want to ask you about about um, misperceptions. Do you get a sense when you talk with people out there that that folks understand that that's where these roles come from? No, in fact, I think the majority of people that I talk to, um, even some in the membership, but certainly those outside the membership and the public, believe that the, the national office staff generally and the enforcement staff specifically drafts those rules. And they're very surprised and pleasantly surprised to find out that that's not the case. You mentioned that 5,800 of them. Um, that could give rise to a suggestion that, is that too many? Is, is that manageable? Is, is it realistic to expect, you said that your staff has to know what they are. Is it realistic to expect a member institution to be able to be on top of so many of these bylaws? Yeah, well, that, that number is across all three divisions. Um, but there are many in the membership, um, very professional compliance officers who will tell you that that number of bylaws is unmonitorable. And our staff recognizes that it is tough to monitor all of those bylaws and all of the people on campus and all of the student athletes and all of the representatives off campus, perhaps. And so our staff is mindful of that. When we consider allegations like failure to monitor or lack of institutional control, we take into account not so much the resources of the institution, but the demands placed on that institution by the number of bylaws, whether it's the right number or not is a question for the membership, really not a question for the national office staff. To our point a few minutes ago, it's the bylaw, it's the, it's the schools that draft those bylaws, not the staff. So let's go back to, to the, the, the processes, if you will. So something comes into you and there's an initial assessment done of it. 
Um, if, if as a determination that there doesn't seem to be any real value to this or any significance to it, it as you said, it, it kind of goes away. What do you do if you have a question? If you look at this and say either you're clear that in your mind, you being the enforcement staff, that this is indeed a violation or it may well be, what's the next step that's taken by you? Yeah. First, a note on the process itself, because it's important to note that the process we keep talking about is itself not a creation of the National Office staff. So the process we're talking about is legislated, is codified in Article 19 of the manual. So the process itself is a product of the member schools. So once again, it's the member institutions that say, essentially, this is what you're going to do? That's right. Okay. That's right. So if the, to your question, if information that comes in that could be a violation, there's a number of paths that that um, information could take. If it's a minor secondary or in Division One Level Three case, then we will process that. And we will talk um, about Level Three. Just explain Level One, most, most serious, serious. Two, Level Two, Level uh, um, Intermediate, Level okay. Three, less serious, and we process about five thousand of those a year. Right. Those are the only cases where we actually fashion penalties as a staff. And even in those cases, those penalties are subject to review by the Committee on Infractions. Those are the, the, the least, if you would, right. in terms of infractions. The, the lesser offenses. So if, if the information comes in and it's of that nature, then we can process it. If it's something that could be a major case or could be level one or level two, we will assign an investigative team. We will reach out to the institution and we will, we will share with them everything we can about the information that we've got and then decide how to move forward. Sometimes that means that the institution itself will run out the investigation. Sometimes we'll do it. Sometimes we'll work together on it. Sometimes we've got enough information to ask an interpretive question. Could this even be a violation if it's true? And if the answer to that is no, then we close down the case. And that happens a lot. So at the end of every given year, we process. By that, I mean we investigate and, and bring allegations in lots of cases. Uh, but far more times we close down cases because we cannot substantiate the information or we substantiate it and find it not to be a violation. And nobody hears about those cases. Nobody hears about quickly opening, investigating, closing collaboratively uh, a case because it's only our staff in the school that knows about it. You say your staff in the school. What sort of interaction does, does the staff or can the staff have with schools when you are assessing whether there's a problem here or not? Yeah, I think the, the members and, and the listeners uh, today would be surprised at the level of communi- the high level of communication between the enforcement staff and institutions or coaches or their counsel if they're representative, if, if they are represented. We share information rather freely with institutions and their counsel. And very early on in a case, we decide, look, let's work together on this. Let's see if we can find out what happened. Let's decide together if we can, if there's a violation or if there's not. And the vast majority of cases, Jack, are investigated, processed, and disposed of in that manner. In in fact, two-thirds of the cases are agreed upon at the end on the facts and the violations. Uh, It's the very small number of cases, actually, where there is a dispute about what happened or about uh, whether those facts constitute a violation. The NCAA enforcement staff is, I, I see, often referred to almost as if they were prosecutors. Is, is that an apt analogy, given what you do comparing to, you know, for instance, what I did when I was a, a prosecutor? Does that, does that make sense to you in terms of what you do? Yeah, you know, the, we usually resist analogies with the criminal context because we're normally not dealing with criminal behavior, and the process never ends up with somebody losing their liberty. 
Um, but the role is similar to that of a prosecutor. That is, we look at information that comes into us. We apply that information to the, to the law, the bylaw here, as we understand it. And if we think there's a violation, we write that up, a very formal notice of allegations. It is briefed and presented to an adjudicative body. Um, we are one party to that proceeding. The institution is the other party. And then we leave the room and the Committee on Infractions, which is representatives of the member schools and the public, much like a court in the criminal proceedings, ultimately decides what the facts are, if there was a violation, and what the penalties are. So in that way, it, it is like a prosecutor because we don't render the ultimate judgment, we don't mete out penalties, and we don't enforce the order of the adjudicative body. So that is done then. Again, in, in, in a hypothetical situation, um, you, you get access to some information, you make a determination that there is sufficient factual basis to move forward on it. Um, you do you work with the institution, and if you get to a stage where, um, all right, there is something that has to be resolved here, it's not you, the enforcement staff, that says, all right, we are going to find that, yes, indeed, this happened, and we are going to tell you what the penalties are. That gets done by the division, sub at Division One Committee on Infractions, yes? That's correct. And where do they all come from? Who are these people sitting on the Committee on Infractions, and what, what, what's their responsibility in the process? Yeah, it's, it's an impressive model of peer review. Division One has its own committee, Division Two its own, Division Three its own. So the, most of the committee members are from member schools. In Division One, there are uh, current and former college presidents, um, conference commissioners, former coaches, directors of athletics, uh, compliance professionals, faculty athletics representatives, um, all bring their their perspective of campus life to the committee uh, to the committee hearing. There are also little known facts members of the public on the committee on infractions. Um, usually, they are lawyers in the private practice of law, and so <clears throat> in Division One, at least, the committee is 23, 24 people. They sit in panels of seven, five, six, or seven. Uh, and it, it is an impressive group of people. I also should have mentioned that the former attorney, uh, attorney general for the United right. States is a member of the Division I Committee on Infractions. And so it is, a, it is a blue ribbon panel, and they are an exacting body. They are not a rubber stamp. They do not believe or adopt everything that the, that the enforcement staff alleges. We have to go in ready to, to support the allegations that we bring, also share refuting information, and answer very difficult questions from the committee. You say sh share refuting information. What do you mean by that? Information that would suggest that the violation did not occur. So our obligation is, is to provide all relevant information to the Committee on Infractions. And so we don't try and get wins. We don't try and, and, and notch uh, prosecutions. Our job, and we take this very seriously um, after we bring an allegation, is to make sure that the Committee on Infractions has all the information supporting and refuting so that that group can make a fully informed decision on whether the violation occurred or not. Let me ask you to explain a little bit what happens uh, as you move along now. What happens in the event that you sit down with the institution and basically you, as the enforcement folks, the institution, their representatives say, okay, we, we've basically agreed on what happened here. Right? There, there are no factual disputes we have to get resolved. And, and we're kind of on the same page in terms of, of what, the, what the resolution should be. How does that type of case get resolved usually? Yeah, well, just like you described, um, lots of communications, usually by telephone, but often in person. 
not unusual at all to sit down with an institution either here uh, in the national office with their counsel or someplace else and talk through, look, here's the information that we've got. Do you agree or disagree with that? Here's the violations that we think are at play. Do you agree or disagree with that? And like I said before, the vast majority of cases, everybody agrees not only with the facts, but also with the violations. Um, in that scenario, we can present that information to the Committee on Infractions for resolution without a formal um, in-person confrontational evidentiary hearing. Um, <clears throat> we agree, submit it to the committee, and they can fashion penalties. Where we, where we bump into disagreements, though, in the scenario that, that you outlined sometimes is the severity of the case. So we agree on the facts and we agree with an institution that violations occurred. We think it's major or level one or level two. The institution thinks it's level three or secondary. Not unusual, reasonable minds could differ. And one of the things I love about this model, Jack, is we can look at a college president or an AD or a coach and say, you know what, no problem. Everybody here is acting in good faith. Reasonable minds could disagree, and there's a mechanism to resolve that dispute. And the good news for you, institution, is that the fact finders and the adjudicative body looks a lot more like you than they do me. So let's take it to them and let them decide. And then there's a layer of, of review above and beyond that. But to your, to your question, it is, there is more communication between our office and a school than people would realize. On a case, it's not unusual to have daily several times a day conversation with an institution or their counsel. You mentioned a few moments ago that the bylaws themselves are the product of the institutions. They decide through their own democratic process what we want to have here. I talked about the processes are the product of the, the institutions saying here's how this is going to happen. What about the penalties? Where do they come from? Yeah, the penalties, uh, the, the very first email I got when I accepted this position was a booster from a school, and I won't name the school, that demanded that I undo the penalties that had been prescribed in a major case a couple of years ago. And it made very clear to me early on that people thought that I was responsible or that the enforcement staff was responsible for penalties and were not. And so in a major case or in a level one or level two case, that is a more significant violation, that is, that is a decision reserved to the sound discretion of the membership through its representatives on the Committee on Infractions. And so it's that body, not the enforcement staff, that ultimately decides whether a case is major or not, or whether it's level one or level two or not. And then once they decide that, it's the Committee on Infractions, again, representatives from the membership and the public who decide, will there be scholarship reductions? Will there be a postseason ban? Will there be um, a suspension? Will there be probation? It's that body that decides that with very little input, very little input from the enforcement staff. And is the committee in that sort of scenario, uh, is the committee given any, any general guidelines to follow in terms of appropriate penalties? They are, especially in Division One. There is a matrix. There is a, a guideline at the end of Article 19, which is the bylaw that governs the process. And it is, it's actually very specific in what the potential penalties, the, the prescribed penalties, could be in a case. It's designed to be predictable so that an institution or a coach um, knows going into a case or hopefully before the violation happens what the what So the, the idea likely... is put people on notice in advance. Right, right. While also um, allowing flexibility for aggravating or mitigating circumstances. That is facts that make it worse or better. Um, but the idea is to be predictable and that's that chart, that guideline, that matrix is publicly available. It's in the manual. Anybody with an internet connection can find it. It's figure 19-1 
at the end of Article 19 in the manual. When, when you get to that stage um, and a, a determination is made, let's, let's talk about one where there are either, either factual disagreements or significant disagreements as to what the levels should be or what the penalty should be, and you end up having something more than the, the summary disposition you talked about before. Uh, what does that look like? Yeah, it's, it's a formal hearing. It's in person. We, uh, the, 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 there is a, a staff that supports the Committee on Infractions, separate from our staff, and they arrange for a giant ballroom and a hotel, sometimes here in Indianapolis, sometimes in other areas. It's all behind closed doors. It's not open to the public. We don't want interference from the media um, or people hanging around snapping photographs, although they find us sometimes. But it's a giant ballroom. There is a head table at one end of the room, and, and that's where the Committee on Infractions sits. There's uh, another table at one end that is the enforcement staff, and that's where we sit to present the information about a case. There's another table across from us where the institution and their counsel sit, and then coaches and their lawyers are also in the room. And it is um, sometimes has a very formal feel to it, Jack, because everybody's in a suit and a tie, and in some ways it's very scripted, and there's a court reporter who takes it all down. In other ways, there's a very informal feel to it because it is just a conversation between members and their peers on the Committee on Infractions about what happened and whether it's a violation and what the penalties should be. And so despite the, the formal feeling, it's actually a very informal conversation, um, and, it's a, and it is a really good way, in my view, um, to resolve disputes. It is, it is genuinely peer review. Um, by members of the Committee on Infractions um, in dialogue with their colleagues from campus. At the end of that process, and, and as you explained to us, um, the, the, it then essentially gets handed off to the, let's, we're talking about D Division One now for an illustration, Division One Committee on Infractions. They then take this case in um, and they make determinations. Um, what, what is the sort of range of determinations that they will make then? Yeah, so it's important to note that the, the determinations they make, I've never seen that happen. I'm not in that room. We're excused from the room. What happens in committee deliberations, I don't have the foggiest idea. The outcomes could be that they don't find that the violations happened at all, um, and that happens occasionally. Or they could find that some of the violations happened and others didn't, or they could find or conclude that everything that the enforcement staff alleged occurred um, if they find one or more violations, they, the committee members, then have to decide what the penalties are. And they look at the matrix and they decide, you know, um, which penalties are appropriate given the violations that they found. Um, and then all of that is subject to review. We can talk about that in a moment. But um, the, <clears throat> the last year, the committee found a little over 90 percent of the, of the violations that we alleged of those that they found, the committee found uh, or agreed with us in a little over 90 percent on the, on the level, mm -hmm. which is pretty good batting average. You don't want right. – uh, the committee is not a rubber stamp, and so they don't find everything that we allege, um, 
but I would be concerned if we were missing more than we were hitting. And, and I can tell you again from my own experience in a couple of years on the on the committee, uh, as you said, it's just the committee. They're they're at that point in time, it's it's they the the members of the committee are and oftentimes anguishing over this, over finding what's the right thing to do under the circumstances here. So. Um, as you said, if, if, if you know people think it's a rubber stamp, or people think that you or a member of your staff is in there saying to the committee, "Here's what you should do," they're wrong, <laughs> because the committee members are again, as you said, all very accomplished in their own worlds, and they're going to make their own decision uh, are, based upon what they find. It, it is independent review. You used yeah. an important word a moment ago, and that is anguish, and I believe that that happens at the committee on infractions. I'll take your word for that. I can represent to you and to the listeners that there is anguish in the process long before the Committee on Infractions ever hears the case. And so before we bring an allegation of any kind, we go through layer after layer after layer of quality control review to make sure that what we bring is right. And there is a disagreement occasionally on the staff, and we have long, hard, difficult meetings. Will we bring this? Do the facts support it? At what level? Is this the right violation? Have we cited the right bylaws? to make sure that we do here in the national office all the work that we can do in advance to make sure that we're provi uh, providing a quality product to the Committee on Infractions. So there is much anguish and much disagreement even on the staff as we work through what is the right thing in the case, which is the only thing we're trying to find is what is, what is right here, calling balls and strikes. Once there's been a decision made by the Committee on Infractions, uh, is there a, a method for that to be reviewed, that decision? There is. There is um, uh, an infractions appeals committee, again, in all three divisions, a, a division-specific appeals committee populated much like the Committee on Infractions. It's representatives from schools in that division and representatives from the public. And much like the Committee on Infractions hearing, there can be, frequently is, an in-person um, hearing with the appeals committee and they will look at the underlying record, the underlying decision from the committee on infractions, and then render a decision whether to affirm, vacate, or remand uh, the decision from the committee on infractions. But th this appeals committee is a completely new and fresh set of eyes? It is. It's entirely, entirely different set of people. All right. Let me ask you about a, a, a couple of things. Um, one of the one of the the criticisms that you've seen, I'm, I'm sure, in some cases, is the length of time it takes for cases to get resolved from start to finish. What what sort of time are we talking about, and what what sort of response would you have as the person who is in charge of this for somebody to somebody who's saying, you know what, uh, it's it's taken too long to get this done? Yeah, in many cases, I would agree with that. So again, the dividing between major and secondary, level one, level two versus level three. The more minor cases, we're disposing of those now in a matter of days. Um, so there is very quick response. And I don't want to underestimate or understate the significance of those violations in the membership. We tend to talk about them like they are minor violations, like they don't matter. But when you talk with coaches, you realize those are the things that really do bother um, our, our colleagues in the membership. And so we work very hard to get those right and to process those timely. The more major cases, the level one and level two in division one, also fall into a couple of different categories. Those that go to the Committee on Infractions are the ones that people read about, and those are the ones that, that can, on occasion, extend beyond one year, two or three, four years on occasion. I agree that that's too long. There is another category of cases, though, that are, that are developed, opened, investigated, and closed, often in a matter of days or weeks, again, that the, that the public isn't aware of because 
they're they're closed without formal allegations. And in those instances, um, we move very quickly to the to the school's delight. Actually, those that extend a year, two, three, four years, I would agree, run too long. What a lot of people don't realize, though, is that the length of time is largely a function of the procedural safeguards that are in place to guard against over-prosecution or over-alleging or unfair penalties. And so those delays are sometimes because of lengthy briefing schedules or the time that it takes to convene uh, a hearing or render a decision or the time that it takes to retain counsel and then coordinate schedules so that everybody can, can participate in an interview. And it's not unusual in the case to have 50 or 60 or 70 interviews. And so, as you can imagine, that, that takes a while. But we are doing everything in our power to make sure that we move cases as quickly as we can. I feel strongly about that because everybody wins when it moves more quickly, yet without sacrificing our commitment to accuracy, thoroughness, uh, or fairness. As you look at the manner in which the, the enforcement function of the NCA is, is sometimes represented, uh, out of the media, um, other folks who are observers, what are the, the, the most pronounced misperceptions that you see out there that you think people need to realize that's just not right? Let me tell you how it actually really works. Yeah, we've talked about a couple of those already. One of the misperceptions is that we write the bylaws, and we've talked about the fact that we don't. Another misperception is that we are responsible, we, the enforcement staff, are responsible for the outcomes, and we're not. Um, another misperception is that we have an agenda, you know, to protect certain schools or coaches or conversely to go get other schools or other conferences or other coaches, and that's not the case. Instead, um, what we prioritize are behaviors, those activities, those violations that most seriously threaten the collegiate model, those behaviors that threaten the game. Those are our priorities, whether they happen at um, one particular school uh, in one particular conference or at a lesser-known school and a coach nobody's heard of. Is, is of less significance to me than the behavior. Um, another misperception is that we are cavalier or um, otherwise sloppy in how we bring allegations, how we fashion them, how we articulate them. And I think that the audience listening and the member institutions would be, would be pleasantly surprised at the effort that we make to, to assure that the cases are consistent between and among similar factual patterns. Um, but also that we are bringing the right allegations at the right level. And uh, we work really hard, really hard to get it right, right by the school that's at risk, right by the other schools in that institution's conference, and right by the other 1,200 or so member institutions. Those are difficult balances um, to reach, and, and some will look at that and say, well, you missed, or you overalleged, or you underalleged, or clearly these cases are identical and you treated them differently. Um, that's a misperception. We work very hard to make sure that similar cases are treated similarly and that uh, the, the, the product that we um, roll out to the institutions and to the Committee on Infractions is accurate, is of high quality, and is consistent with the, the, the will of the membership and the bylaws of the membership. Well, whenever, as you know, whenever you have disputes, there are obviously going to be some folks who don't agree with what the resolution is. But my, my hope is after this conversation, uh, after they've listened to you describe it, they understand now how the process works. Uh, so at least the process can be respected, even if there might be disagreement with the results. And, and, and we see that often. John Duncan, wanna thank you for spending some time and explaining this. 
at all. No, no problem, Jack. My pleasure. Look forward to talking to you again soon. Likewise. That does it for us for this edition of College Sports Insider. I'm Jack Ford. We hope you'll join us again real soon. Until then, take care.